Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology the things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folda. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and I'm interested in the new therapies and new technologies that can improve the human condition. And whether that's through better crops in the field or new drugs on the market or even new cellular and gene therapies that can add to the arsenal of physicians' uh, choices against today's most insidious diseases. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Eric Ostertag. He's the founder and CEO of Poseida Therapeutics. And we're going to be talking about gene therapies and even some new cellular therapies against uh, some well-known cancer. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ostertag. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thank you for joining me. I think this is really great because we haven't had that much on uh, gene therapy or uh, CAR T-cell therapies in a while. But um, we were having a little conversation before the session here about gene therapy and, you know, your presence at the beginning of, the, of that field. And you might remember with me back in the 1990s or back in the 80s, we thought that this would be a front and center technology that would be uh, solving problems right away. And I think that I even did speeches on this back in college uh, that we would have new therapies using gene therapy never really materialized too quickly back then. And so what do you think the biggest assumption we made back then that we thought that this would be uh, you know, a deployable technology in the 1990s? Right. So in the early 90s, um, you know, like other people, I was getting the idea that gene therapy would be the way in the future to correct disease because it's just it's pretty obvious that if cancers and congenital diseases have a genetic basis, why not fix the underlying problem, right? So I ended up going to University of Pennsylvania for my MD and PhD degrees. And at that time, Penn was becoming the mecca for gene therapy. Uh, funny story along these lines, I did some research in Jim Wilson's lab, who's now considered one of the major pioneers in gene therapy. And he was telling me a story that he was doing his work on his PhD in uh, Kelly's lab, who Kelly at that time was our, uh, he was the head of the medical school. And Jim was telling me the story that he was worried that he wasn't going to finish his PhD quickly enough because all of the problems in gene therapy are going to be solved by the time he finished his work. And of course that was, you know, early 90s. And he was telling me this story in the mid 90s to try to make me feel good. Like, oh, I, you know, no rush. There's always going to be a problem to solve. And here we are um, more than 25 years later. And finally, I think we're on the doorstep of some very successful gene therapies in the clinic, but it, it took a long time. Why did it take so long? Well, I mean, that's of course multifactorial, but I think the biggest problem was a lack of 
tools. And if you think about the strategy back then, it was a reasonable assumption that if viruses normally deliver DNA into human genomes, why not use a virus to deliver therapeutic DNA into human genomes? So reasonable idea, but of course, viruses evolved to do that, humans evolved to stop that. And so there were a lot of issues where the immune system could eliminate the therapy or could even worse cause a toxicity that could in some cases even be fatal. And the virus didn't care obviously about delivering other genes. It only had the capacity to deliver its own genes. So then people started stripping out genes from the virus to increase the capacity. But when you do that, you create another problem. You can't actually stably integrate the DNA into the genome. So that created a whole field such as AAV, which is really only a transient gene therapy that creates additional problems. You can't really use a transient approach like that to treat the pediatric patient population, for example, that has a rapidly dividing liver because those transient therapies get eliminated pretty quickly. So my thought even back then was why not build something that has all the functions of a virus, but is not a virus. And that to me required two major components. One was a way to get the DNA into the genome, which is what the virus would normally do. And I found that through a, what's called BNA transposon system. And I did my PhD on transposons. So that was uh, intentional. And then the second component was a way to get the DNA into the cell, which of course the virus can also do. It has a capsid. To substitute for that, I assumed that the future would be nanoparticles. I believe I was also correct about that, but that took some time to develop. So now at Poseida, we really are on the verge of being able to do potentially single treatment cures using a combination of the DNA transposon for integration and also a biodegradable nanoparticle to deliver the system into a specific cell. So are those the technologies that really make Poseida different from other types of therapies that are being used? Yeah, particularly if you think about the DNA delivery component, most companies are still using a virus, whether that be gene therapy with AAV or whether that be chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T therapy with lentivirus or gamma retrovirus. Most companies are still using viral-based technologies, and there's a lot of downsides to that. I mentioned some already. So we're pretty unique in having a very powerful non-viral DNA delivery technology the other platform we have, which is important for some types of gene therapy, everything I just described could be a gene addition. In other words, you're not worried about the mutation in the genome. You're just replacing the entire gene wholesale with a new one. You could also do gene editing, or you could do a knock-in. Uh, to do these types of things, you need something called a site-specific nucleus. And now I'm sure everybody's heard of CRISPR. That's one form of that. Well, we developed a very advanced form of site-specific nuclease. We're actually the pioneers in uh, Italian nuclease early on. And then when CRISPR was described, we knew that it had a lot of unwanted off-target mutations. It's a, what I would call a dirty enzyme. So to fix that, we engineered what's called a fully dimeric enzyme. It uses the 
CRISPR Cas9 protein, but that's completely inactivated. We mutate it so that it cannot cut DNA. It's really just there as a DNA binding protein. And then we fuse that to what's called the type 2S restriction nucleus that works only as an obligate homodimer. So by doing that, you eliminate that unwanted off-target problem because now you have two half sites that have to come together at the exact same place at the exact same time in the genome. So it does have the ease of use, ease of design, low cost, multiplexing ability that everybody loves CRISPR for, but it importantly works in like piggyback types that, that it's been tested in, including resting cells. And that's, that's a really important point I'll talk about later for, for CAR-T. Uh, but it doesn't have these unwanted off-target mutations. We've really solved that problem. So when you think about some of the more sophisticated types of edits, like a specific nucleotide change somewhere in the genome, or in the case of CAR-T, taking an auto product, autologous or individualized product, making it into a off-the-shelf or allogeneic product, you have to do some additional gene editing. We use our platform, Cat Clover, to achieve that. I see, but let me just ask a quick technical question. So if you're, you're putting this onto a restriction enzyme uh, endonuclease that's attached to the DNA binding portion of, of the Cas9 protein, is that still being directed by the guide RNA or is it being directed by the restriction sequence to form the dimer or, you know, how is, 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 the, is the restriction enzyme doing the, doing the cutting here or is that still a function of Cas9? No, so the Cas9 protein, which as you know, has RNA guided DNA binding abilities. So it's a ribonucleoprotein um, that has been mutated to eliminate the nucleosides, both catalytic sites. So you can't, that protein can no longer cut DNA. It's, it's been converted purely to a RNA guided DNA binding protein. So then the nucleus piece, we did the opposite. We took off the endogenous binding and we left the valuable piece, which is the obligate homodimer that gives it its very high level of specificity that was fused to the DCAS9. So it is still guided by RNAs. It's like I said, easy to use, easy to design this, easy to uh, manufacture, low cost. You can multiplex it. It's got all those wonderful things about CRISPR, but it's eliminated the problem of the off-target mutations. Yeah, I think I see how this works now. That that makes a lot more sense. So recently, there's been a collaboration with Takeda, and this was to develop these non-viral uh, in vivo gene therapies. And so, what is so uh, attractive about Takeda as a partner? And and you know, we've already talked about the non-viral side. Um, why is this? Why are they a particularly good partner to collaborate with? Well, as you probably know, Takeda is one of the leading, if not the leading, large pharma companies focused on rare disease. And like us, they philosophically share the goal of having curative therapies. So we talk about single treatment cure. They talk about functional cure. And that could mean a series of treatments, for example, as opposed to just one injection. But at the end of the day, you're cured. You don't need to take a pill or even a second type of gene therapy every month or year. You should be one and done. And so that was, I think, a very good fit. There's also synergy where we have the industry-leading gene delivery technology. We have the industry-leading 
gene editing technology, and then we have the biodegradable, biodegradable nanoparticle technology, which is gene delivery. So I think like us, they view the viral technologies as um, something that was useful, but is really not the future of gene therapy. The future of gene therapy is fully non-viral. You probably know you can't go a week these days without having something in the news about a problem with AAV. It could be a, a patient death, clinical hold, some, some problem with AAV. So most people, I think, now are understanding that long-term, the non-viral is the best method for gene therapy. That's great. You also talk about the idea of single treatment cures. And then this was really an attractive angle here because there, so it seems to me that a lot of the gene therapies and cellular therapies fall into one of two buckets that some of them are a one and done type thing, like what's being done towards uh, sickle cell disease, with ablating the bone marrow and replacing bone marrow with modified cells. Uh, we've talked about that on the podcast, but what about some of the other major diseases that currently require extensive therapy that you're hoping to convert to single treatment cures? Right. So let's just pick liver directed gene therapies as a category. Uh, now, of course, you can slice and dice gene therapies a lot of different ways. In vivo versus ex, ex vivo, you can focus on the cell type. So you could say it's cellular therapy versus classic in vivo gene therapy. Let's just pick one in vivo liver directed gene therapy. And even within that, there are a lot of different types of diseases you could treat. There are things where your protein needs to be secreted from the liver, like the clotting factor diseases, hemoglobinopathies. There are uh, things where the absence of an enzyme creates a problem, which could be systemic or it could be focused in the liver. So there are a lot of these. These are, of course, the congenital metabolic diseases. But... In pretty much every case, these affect you when you're born. They're congenital. They manifest most often early in life. The, the more severe the mutation, the earlier in life it's going to affect you. And the more severe it's going to be, you, many cases, unfortunately, for these diseases don't even make it to adulthood. And if you think about the standard approaches for gene therapy, a lot of them are delivering a gene to correct the disease, and usually using AAV. That's their sort of gold standard right now. And as I mentioned, lots of problems with that, but it's sort of the best anybody's been able to do so far. When you're doing the AAV delivery, though, it doesn't integrate into the genome. And so what you're seeing right now is a lot of the AAV-based companies will, first of all, go after the milder diseases in the adult patient population. These are mutations that are less severe, allowed the individual to make it to adulthood in the first place. And why is that? Well, adults don't have a rapidly dividing liver, whereas juveniles do. So you can think about non-dividing as an episome, and that gets diluted out as the liver divides. You also see a lot of companies going after non-dividing tissues, which could be the muscle or the back of the eye. And that's where, that's where we've seen success clinically right now and, and with a few products actually on the market. What, what we're trying to do is ask the question, can you also cure these huge portions of patients that are not being treated right now with those standard gene therapies? The juvenile patient population, with a high, high or higher unmet medical need, uh, 
And we think so, because the way that it works is the therapeutic transient, again, is delivered by, uh, could be delivered by AAV transiently as an episome, or we think the, the best approach is to deliver it with a biodegradable nanoparticle. And then once in the cell, there's a transient expression of the enzyme that moves this DNA transposon called transposase that will be delivered by RNA. So it just it makes its protein. Protein grabs what's called the ITRs or inverted terminal repeats at the end of your therapeutic transient. And, and that's the only thing that defines this as a DNA transposon. Now, everything else is just your therapeutic transient, your promoter, your regulatory sequences, the gene itself, poly A signal and whatnot, that all gets moved wholesale into the genome. And then the transposase goes away. It's transient because it was delivered as RNA. And when you think about it, then if that's efficient enough, every single cell from there on for the life of, in the case of a mouse model, that the animal, or in the case of a human, the, the person, will have that therapeutic transient. And it doesn't get shut down because we don't have, for example, viral promoters or other things where the cell, your genome actually shuts it down. And what we've seen in animal models is that even if you take the animal out to its normal lifespan, these are disease models. So for example, ornithine transcarbamylase disease, which is a urea cycle disease, citrullinemia type one, PFIC3, which is a bile acid transporter disease. And these diseases with a single treatment using the system all the way out to the end of the lifespan of the animal, you get functional correction of this disease. You get high level stable expression of the transient. In other words, they're cured. So that's the goal in humans. Can we achieve that same thing in humans? Can we do it in the pediatric patient population? And the good news is, if the answer is yes, like we think it will be in the clinic, well, at that point, you could do the same exact approach for literally dozens, if not hundreds of genetic diseases. I guess that's my next question that comes up here is that there are so many strange metabolic diseases, extremely rare, that uh, do affect things like liver, you know, where there, there are metabolic diseases that probably don't get a lot of research money and a lot of uh, uh, attention to new therapies. And people usually have to live with these if they can, um, from, from, as you say, from childhood. But does this just broaden, like this kind of approach, just broaden what can be done towards uh, addressing some of these extremely rare diseases in a really efficient way? Yeah, absolutely. You can think about, uh, first of all, our first indication is going to be ornithine transcarbamylase disease. And this, this one has been talked about a long time in the gene therapy space. Uh, it was attempted long time ago at Penn, actually, uh, you probably remember the Jesse Gelsinger story where he unfortunately passed away from the therapeutic itself. And that, that probably set the field back quite a bit. And again, that was the older viral technology. But we think not only could you treat uh, adults or young adults now like Jesse was, but also a child with this approach. Um, so if that works, of course, there are many other liver diseases. We talked about hemophilia. That's our second program. And we actually partnered that with Takeda for hemophilia A. Uh, you could treat hemophilia B. There are other bleeding disorders where you'd want to replace the clotting factor. 
there are dozens of other diseases in the liver. But here's the interesting thing. By switching the what's called the cationic lipid in the biodegradable nanoparticle and or adding what would be called the targeting motif, that could be a peptide, it could be an antibody, you can direct the nanoparticle to another tissue in the body. And a wonderful thing about the piggyback technology is, number one, it doesn't have a cargo limitation. You think about AAV, they're limited to pretty small cargo, maybe 4.5 kilobases. We don't see that with piggyback. You can deliver hundreds of kilobases. There's also no inherent cargo limitation to the nanoparticle technology. So now you can put very large transgenes, regulatory elements, anything you would want. There's really no disease that would be off limits, no genetic cargo that would be off limits. And the other thing that's really wonderful about piggyback is it works in all cells and tissues ever tested in, in mammals. So it doesn't matter if the cell is dividing, doesn't matter if the cell is uh, replicating its DNA. So when you think about that, as long as you can get this technology into a cell, piggyback will do its thing and get the therapeutic transgene stably integrated into the DNA. That means that even non-dividing tissues like muscle or CNS, uh, you could treat the lung. There, there are really no limitations on what you could tr treat using this strategy. Another question that I would have never asked you before, but last week I spoke with a genetic counselor and she told me that the, a really important role that she's taken these days is genetic counseling around in vitro fertilization that uh, they can actually do sequencing for single cell sequencing, whole genome sequencing and learn about the genotype of a developing embryo and make some good genetic choices, especially high risk parents. And I, maybe you haven't thought about this yet. Maybe you have, but well, doesn't that seem like the perfect place for this kind of technology to be able to replace in an extremely early stage and make that correction where the corrective mechanism is transient, but the effect is permanent. Right. So, um, of course, you're getting into what, what's called uh, germline gene therapy. And there are, as I said, a lot of different ways to divide types of gene therapy. You can divide them by somatic cells or germ cells. And really the big difference is something you do to a somatic cell, whether it be a T cell, like our CAR T therapeutics or a thadocyte, like we're talking about with liver-directed therapies, you're really only affecting that individual because you know they will hopefully survive. They'll be cured, like I talked about. They'll survive. They'll have children. Um, but they could then still pass on potentially the genetic mutation that they had because you're not correcting their, their germ cells, uh, the sperm or oocytes or, you know, so that, that, that would be potentially desirable. I, I, when you think about it, you could make a change where not only are you curing them, but you'd be curing their descendants of a, of a potential disease. So I, I actually wrote a paper on this in the early nineties and, Germline gene therapy is considered to be off limits ethically, and I'll talk about why in a second. The, you know, another way to divide this would be to think about it as are you creating a therapeutic benefit or are you uh, just trying to make an enhancement? Now, that, that really gets into murky waters, the, the latter, because you're talking about eugenics, right? And um, eugenics combined with germline changes is, is a pretty scary concept. 
So basically currently considered uh, completely off limits. And frankly, right now we have, we as a society, as scientists, have our hands full trying to cure these genetic diseases using somatic uh, gene therapies, right? So I, I'll leave whether or not we should ever do it to the ethicist, but I think, you know, for now, we're just talking about correcting mutations in that individual. Um, you don't have to worry about arguments that they're making, you know, decisions for people who aren't even born yet. That, again, we'll leave that for the ethicist. And that's a really great distinction. I'm really glad we just discuss that because it really it's so important to uh, be clear about what's being done. I'm, I'm kind of in a funny place on that because I, I really feel that if we can solve a problem and you know like sickle cell disease so that it never happens to that person's uh, you know offspring, you know that it's something we should do. And I know there's ethicists who are all over this, and I'm not an ethicist, but willing to listen to them. But <laughs> we're speaking with Dr. Erica Ostertag. He's the founder and CEO of Poseida Therapeutics. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Whether we like it or not, the views that we express online and reviews frequently do shape others' opinions on whether to consume different forms of electronic media, podcasts included. That's why your efforts in Writing a short review on the Talking Biotech podcast are much appreciated. You see, the podcast has pretty good reviews, like 200 and something reviews that are all five stars, except for a couple, which are three and four. Some of the three and fours were a little bit nasty because Volta trashed UFO science. Yes, folks, this is what we're up against have to be able to discuss issues like ufology with a critical eye for science, which doesn't make some people happy. So uh, you might notice that the bad guys, the anti-biotech folks, have really not chimed in. They haven't desecrated this podcast like they do so many others, probably because time is not on their side. Tearing down a scientific podcast like this one probably is a bad move. Because as we've seen, biotechnology continues to do good things for people and the planet. We also ask you to consider slipping us a few dollars over on the Patreons. It's definitely helping us expand our listenership. Every dollar is used to boost social media presence. Volta covers the other costs 100% by himself. The dollars you donate go to boost the podcast on Facebook and other places and buy a little bit of advertising love to help more people find it and listen. So thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend. Thank you for writing a nice review. And thank you for throwing us a dollar or two a month over on the Patreons. And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Ostertag. He's the CEO and founder of Poseida Therapeutics. And we're speaking about new brands of gene therapy that uh, are virus-free, that are allowing scientists to create therapeutic solutions from transposon-based 
solutions delivery delivered with nanoparticles and being able to correct specific discrete disorders. And we were talking about this on the front half of the podcast, but Poseida also has a very um, novel approach with CAR T therapy. And we've talked about CAR T therapies before on, on the podcast, but could you remind us of what those are? And then give me a little bit of a hint about how Poseida's approach is a little bit different. Sure, Kevin. So CAR-T stands for chimeric antigen receptor. That's the CAR. And then T is T-cell therapy. And what it entails is taking a person's T-cells or a healthy donor's T-cells and genetically modifying them. Sometimes I I say educate them to attack uh, cancer or a cell you don't want in the body, which cancer is a pretty good example of that. And T-cells are, as you know, good killers. They naturally normally surveil the the body. And if you have an infected cell, they'll kill that cell through a cytotoxic response. And they have a lot of nice functions. They're serial. They can kill more than one cell. And they have an anamnestic response. So like B cells, where there's memory, and if you get infected with a virus, maybe 20 years later, you get infected with the same virus, you immediately should have some antibodies against that virus. But what isn't as thought of as often, I find, is that the cytotoxic response has a similar memory response. There's, there are specific cells called PSCM or stem cell memory that are maintained in your body for decades. And sure enough, if you got infected 20 years later with the same virus, those memory cells would once again recognize, immediately start making differentiated mature T cell or effector cells that will kill the infected cells. And that's a really important part of your immune system, it's probably even more important than the antibodies for for many different viruses. So this is all important because what most people in the CAR T field do is they take a virus, lentivirus or gamma retrovirus, and they stick in this molecule, which is your CAR. The CAR itself is, is kind of a fascinating idea, but it's essentially a receptor that doesn't exist in nature that is targeting something on the cell you want to kill. And then internally, the signaling domains are similar to an endogenous TCR or co-stimulatory domains. And that gets the cell fired up, if you will, and it will then activate, it will kill your target. And it's been wonderfully effective in some indications, like the first patient, first pediatric patient to get treated uh, by some of my colleagues at Penn was Emma Whitehead. She had a B-cell ALL or leukemia and wasn't doing so well. It failed all standard therapies. One single treatment of CAR-T, and now she's nine years later, probably cured of that disease. So it can be a very powerful strategy. When you think then about moving it to other diseases, and particularly as you get into the solid tumors, CAR-T really hasn't worked as well. And there's a lot of theories for why that is, and there are theories for how you should combat that. But what I'm going to tell you is the cell type makes all the difference. And this probably shouldn't be a surprise because for cell therapy, uh, why wouldn't the cell type and the percentage of those cells make a really important difference? turns out if you manufacture your cells carefully and you do it in resting T cells and you have the technology like we do to enable this, you can make a very high percentage TSDM, stem cell memory, phenotype in your final product. 
And if you remember, I said these cells normally last a lifetime. So persistence is important for treating these cancers. If there were ever a relapse, you can then sometimes even see recontrol without readministration. And what we found in the clinic is that the best responses are in fact associated with the highest percentages of this desirable PSCM. We found that we have a very differentiated safety profile. Other CAR T cells can release lots of cytokines. It causes sometimes something called cytokine release syndrome, can cause neurotoxicity. These can sometimes be fatal. Much, much lower frequencies of these with a high PSCM cell. And then really importantly, PSCM can actually successfully kill solid tumors. And we just showed this recently with some release of our data on our first solid tumor program for prostate cancer. And the reason for that, we think, is that it's thought of more like a pro-drug. Your TSCM cells go in, they engraft in the bone marrow and the lymph nodes, and then they just do what they're supposed to do. They start cranking out lots of more differentiated effector cells. So you can think of it as that's the drug. The pro-drug can make lots of this drug, waves of it, wave after wave, we say, and it will just slowly start chipping away at the tumor until hopefully the tumor is completely gone. And we've actually seen that in at least one solid tumor patient that has not been seen previously ever, to my knowledge, with other CAR-T platforms, maybe with one exception, that was a glioblastoma multiforme patient that was reported in New England Journal. And uh, in that case, they injected the T cells right into the resected tumor cavity. It was followed up by numerous injections, interventricular. And when you think about it, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with one injection because we're, we're able to get that wave after wave of effectors. Well, you mentioned um, prostate cancer, and this is a, there's a lot of reasons I can see why this would be a really attractive target for this therapy. What is Poseidon's rationale in approaching prostate cancer as a target? Well, number one, you have to have a good molecular target. You need something that, in the case of CAR-T, is on the surface of the cell. In the case of something called PCRT, it could be internal to the cell. But with CAR-T, you want a molecule expressed on the surface of the cell. You want it to be on the majority, if not all, of the cells that are cancerous in that patient. You want it to be on the majority of patients that have that indication. And you don't want it to be on normal healthy cells because once you've educated that T cell to, to attack that molecule or a cell with that molecule on the surface, it, it can't distinguish typically from a cancer cell or a normal healthy cell. Now, I, I think there are ways around that in the future to expand the number of indications. But right now, you really want a nice clean target. And that is the case for diseases like B-cell ALL that Emma Whitehead had with CD19 on the surface of B-cells. That's the case with multiple myeloma, which we have uh, one product that's auto already in the clinic. We have a second one that's fully allogeneic, about to enter the clinic. And that target is called BCMA or B-cell maturation antigen. And in the case of prostate cancer, you, ha you have that. There's a, a nice clean target called uh, PSMA. And so that was part of the reason we chose that indication. Now, you also, of course, want a, an indication with high unmet medical need. And prostate cancer, first of all, has a lot 
of patients. You, you probably know it's um, extremely frequent cancer in men, unfortunately. In a lot of men, that is a disease that takes a long time to mature, and there are some treatments. But when you get to what's called metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, these are, this is a cancer that, of course, is metastatic, but it's also lost its ability to respond to a pretty standard line of therapies called antiandrogen. Once that's occurred, you really don't have a whole lot available. This is a difficult to treat cancer. These patients have very abysmal five-year survival, 30% or less, and so huge unmet medical need. That's, that's what we went after with our first autologous party. It makes a lot of sense because it's slow growing and, and something like uh, they say 100% of men have some signs of neoplasia by the time they're you know, in their 80s or 90s. And so it makes a lot of sense that this would be there. Plus, it seems like all the therapies that are available, all the current strategies are, tend to be kind of radical and, and, and sometimes are life-changing in terms of uh, you know, other collateral effects like impotence and everything else. So this is a really, uh, it seems like a really attractive target for those reasons as well, just for patient uh, well-being afterwards. Uh, you also mentioned some other therapies against multiple myeloma. And can you tell us a little bit more about those and how they make things and how they're different from other current strategies? Well, multiple myeloma would fit into the category of a hematologic malignancy or liquid tumor, even though it is part bone, you know, the cells that cause this are plasma cells, which make your antibodies. And when you have multiple myeloma, these cells usually cause cancer in the bones and your bones get really brittle. It almost looks like Swiss cheese, unfortunately, for these patients. And because it's a bone disease, it's good to have uh, an approach that your therapy can get to the bone. And I mentioned these TSCM cells are really good at homing to the bone marrow and the lymph nodes, which, which is where they normally live. So that's a great thing for prostate adenocarcinoma and many other solid tumors, but it's also a really nice attribute for uh, multiple myeloma. The feminist also helps out, as I mentioned, with the best responses. And we've actually seen remarkably patients, for example, out to over two years with stringent complete response. So that means no detectable tumor whatsoever anywhere in the body by even very sensitive molecular methods or high sensitivity flow cytometry. And maybe even more amazing is if you look in their peripheral blood, you can still see these cells. Now, in that case, it's the differentiated cells because the prodrug makes your drug, the differentiated cells go out into the, the circulation and that's what you're detecting. But that's pretty amazing because typically those more differentiated cells only last weeks to months. And I would say it's probably the same in this case. So how are they still around two years later? Well, that's because you've got the stem cells. The stem cells have been grafted. They're making multiple waves. And in one patient, which we already showed publicly, after two years, all patients go into what's called long-term follow-up. Sometimes they're a little bit harder to track at that point. You don't get too many samples. And we learned at some point that patient, eventually their T cells in the peripheral blood came down to below the level of detection. And at that point, 
their disease markers came back up, meaning they weren't cured. It looked like they were cured for over two years. They still had some residual disease that came back as a relapse. Now, amazingly, without bringing them back into the hospital, without readministering new T-cells, the cells in that patient's body re-expanded after two years. So that, that really shows you the power of TSCM. And we actually have another gentleman who was one of our first patients who's now three and a half years in a durable response. So what that shows you is even for some of these more difficult to treat cancers, meaning ALL is maybe the easiest and then diffuse large B cells a little harder and then myeloma is a little harder and then solid tumor is a little harder. I think you can still get durable responses. You just have to have the right cell type. And then, you know, what, what's next, I would say, is can you now then make it from an individualized therapy or an autologous product to fully allogeneic? And we've believe now been able to do that. We can get cells from a typically younger, healthy donor. Those patients or those donors have much higher percentages of TSCM to start with. And so at the end of the manufacturing process, we have sky high TSCM. We're at now about 60 to 80% and can't wait to see the results of that in the clinic, which, which is coming shortly. Could you expand on that just a little bit for us? Like the, like the difference between um, autologous versus allogeneic uh, donation of cells or, or use of cells from different sources and maybe why it's better to have an allogeneic source? Well, sure. So autologous is pretty straightforward. You, you have a disease, unfortunately. You come in, you get your T cells isolated. They go for manufacturing, and that can take uh, from weeks to over a month. And, and I just mean generally, depending on the process, different companies have different manufacturing processes, but they all take about that amount of time. And then you get your cells back. But those cells are only going to work for you. And what you get is, is the number of cells you have to work with unless you repeat the entire process. So you're, you're kind of limited. Usually it's a single treatment. Uh, oftentimes you can't do what I talked about with that glioblastoma multiforming patient with the multiple administrations. And it could be a pretty expensive process. It takes time. So if you're really very sick, you're in a dire situation. You, you unfortunately might not even make it to get your cells. Um, and you, you can't take these cells to give to anyone else because of allo-reactivity. And that goes in both directions. So the cells themselves should attack the patient you give them to because they're T-cells. So that's called graft-versus-host disease. That could be potentially fatal. And then in the opposite direction, the patient's cells or the uh, recipient cells are going to attack the donor cells, the drug. And that's just a host-versus-graft reaction. In that case, it's a persistence issue. So you can imagine if you could genetically modify your product to eliminate this L-reactivity in both directions, well, now you have an off-the-shelf product. And if you could make hundreds of doses, you're dropping the manufacturing costs substantially by, by literally a hundredfold or maybe more. So now you're making it a very accessible product because it's off the shelf and the cost of manufacturing has dropped significantly. In our, in our case, you've also solved most of the toxicity issues, um, which right now is an additional accessibility issue because other companies give these products 
to patients and then they have to uh, receive them typically at a major medical center, tertiary, that, for example, a tertiary care academic medical center that has an intensive care unit. Some of the patients will need the intensive care unit. We've dosed over 100 patients in our uh, BCMA 101 clinical trial, and we've never had a patient go to the ICU for a toxicity due to the CAR-T. We've never had a what's called a high grade or grade three or higher CRS. So, you know, all these wonderful attributes that I talked about are, we think, due to the TSCM cells. Okay, so the, the holy grail, what we call the holy grail, would be to get a fully allogeneic product one that is genetically modified to eliminate all allergy activity in both directions, graft versus host and host versus graft, maintains a high percentage of TSCM, is off the shelf, and can be made where you get hundreds of doses from a single manufacturing run. Well, that, that, that's a tall order. Uh, and I'll tell you, that took us quite a bit of research to, to tackle all of those problems. But we did it. We're there. We, we have a product, in effect, it just got clearance from the IND, or what's called safe to proceed to move into the clinic. And so we're pretty excited that we're, we're going to start dosing patients shortly, and we'll see if, if the product has all those advantages, and it has the durability, and it has the uh, depth of response that we expect. Um, you know, I think it'll be a huge step forward in the field. It really is. I, I've been following this field as it's been developing, and this seemed to be one of the major hurdles because of the expense of having to engineer autologous donation cells consistently that if you had this generic uh, cell type that you could do this almost, uh, you can almost imagine a, you know, a Jiffy Lube you know, on the street for uh, different therapies, you know, a very simple and portable type of therapy. But the thing that happens in whenever I have a, a guest like you is that I always uh, put a little blurb online about the things that are being done and the, the problems that are being solved. And inevitably I'll be reached out by reach to, or I will, a family member will reach out to me somewhere and ask, you know, how realistic is this? And I have a family member suffering from this, you know, what do I have to tell them? And can you give us an idea about the pipeline uh, in general and how many years till these kinds of therapies may be readily available? And I, I, know, I know I'm asking you to look through a very challenging crystal ball there, but could you give a little bit of hope to maybe some families that are going through some hard times with these diseases? Yeah. So first of all, we have multiple products already in the clinic. We've got a product that I just talked about, BCMA 101, which is an auto CAR-T for multiple myeloma. We have the PPSMA 101, which we talked about, which is the auto CAR-T for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. And we have the IND I just talked about, so safe to proceed into the clinic with our first fully allogeneic version of the multiple myeloma product. And later this year, we have a second IND for a really exciting product because it is fully allogeneic, just like BCMA L01, but it is targeting something called Mucoin-C. And we think that this target is almost a pan-solid tumor target, meaning almost all solid tumors, certainly the epithelial-derived ones, and that includes a long list. That would be your lung cancers, your colorectal cancers, uh, head and neck cancers, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer. That's not long enough list. There are actually others. Um, that will be an off-the-shelf CAR-T going into the clinic um, probably early next year. So IND this year, early next year into the clinic. And um, depending on the stage of these products, it could take 
an additional few years to get approved. Uh, I also, at the beginning, we were talking about our gene therapy programs and the Takeda deal. So we have additional programs uh, moving forward towards the clinic for the congenital liver diseases. The um, timelines might seem daunting to a patient, but some of these patients can qualify for the clinical trials. So my recommendation there would be go to our website, which is www.pasida.com. We have a section for patients and there's an email you can um, use as a patient. We will try to put you in touch with one of our clinical sites. And then the physician there would make the determination whether somebody qualifies. And another good resource is clinicaltrials.gov. That, that lists every trial that's been approved in the United States. You can search that by indication. So our clinical trials will show up there. And if for whatever reason, a patient doesn't qualify for our clinical trial, maybe you can find another one that you do qualify for. That's just amazing. I really appreciate the optimistic uh, conclusion on today's podcast because there's so many families that, especially folks who are suffering from rare cancers where there's not a lot of uh, immediate off-the-shelf solutions. And uh, this kind of thing could just have profound impacts. So I I really appreciate your um, speculating there for me. I know some folks are a little bit hesitant to do that, but thank you for that. So what's next for Poseida after, um, you know, if you had one really big one, I guess it would be this uh, uh, pan solid tumor epithelial type uh, approach. Wouldn't that, is that kind of your, uh, your holy grail of the holy grails? Well, it is. I, I think that would be enormously powerful drug if it's effective in a large number of tumors, and that's our hope. You know, we've already talked about a person, Emma Whitehead, who is probably cured for life of, of her disease. And we certainly have shown recent examples. I, I talked about a few where we have patients now that couldn't even get out of bed. There were probably weeks from death and they're out surfing, biking, running in the mountains. Uh, That's great. Those are the success stories. It doesn't work that well for every single patient. So there's always ways to make improvements. We're always aspiring, not just for single treatment cures, but single treatment cures for everybody. So it is exciting, um, you know, but there's always room for improvement and we're just going to keep working hard until we achieve that goal. Well, this was really exciting. I really appreciate your time today. So we're speaking with Dr. Eric Osertag, and he's the CEO and founder of Poseida Therapeutics. And if, can people find more? You mentioned the website, but if people want to learn more, is there a Twitter feed or someplace where they can keep up with the news? Yeah, we can be found on uh, Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, and we post our announcements on both. And we actually have sister companies that uh, work on other applications of our platform technologies, such as EggBio, um, so that's called Demetra, there's one called Hera, and they have websites where there's even more information about the platform technologies. Uh, but our, our website's probably the best spot, and we have a lot of info there, a lot of uh, presentations from scientific meetings, so you can learn as much as you'd like if you go to our website. Yeah, that sounds great. Just just make me one promise, and that is, as these technologies begin to see 
the daylight and as they start to be implemented or start to solve problems for people, come back on and talk about it with me. Um, I think we have a great opportunity to reach lots of people with uh, exciting news from the world of biotechnology. And it's so important not only to solve their problems, but to understand that these are wonderful therapies that can be of great assistance. So thank you very much for joining me today. Well, I'd love to come back and talk later. Thanks for the questions, Kevin. Really great uh, podcast and look forward to hearing it. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write reviews on iTunes, uh, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcast media. We're seeing how what we thought of as fledgling technologies just a few years ago, or mostly decades ago, how these are really solving major problems and how the future will be based on therapies that start at the molecule. So it's exciting times. Share the podcast, invite a friend. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.